an artificial intelligence that can coherently pass the Turing test would show that there is some level of understanding about our world. And, you know, I think that that scares people a little bit because they want to be able to think that humans are sort of the, the highest level of experience that, that happens on Earth. And being able to have a conversation with an artificial intelligence, I think is such a um, scary and exhilarating prospect for people. And so I think that fundamentally, it'll change the way that we think about ourselves and our own abilities. From the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. Welcome to episode three of Disrupting Good. Off the top, you heard Brianna Brownell, founder and CEO of Pure Strategy Inc., reacting to a prediction by Ray Kurzweil, a topic which we'll get back to in a bit. Now, since we released episode two in early March of 2020, you know, heck, even since we recorded all of our interviews for this project in 2019, the world has changed dramatically with the COVID-19 pandemic. All of us at Disrupting Good would like to thank the healthcare workers, no matter their roles, the truckers, the cashiers, and all the frontline workers helping to keep our nation running and helping to flatten the curve. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who is staying at home. This episode is made possible by support from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada Limited. And in this episode, we will be hearing from our guests discussing what technology trends they are most excited for and whether or not they think the future will be a utopian Star Trek-like vision or if it will be a Hunger Games-like reality, a dystopian vision. We will also hear three of our guests react to Ray Kurzweil's prediction that AI communication will be indistinguishable from that of a human by the end of this decade. And now, on with the show, starting with exciting trends in technology. What upcoming technology are you most excited about? Is it driverless vehicles? Pizza making robots? The ability to cut and paste snippets of genetic code to reverse debilitating and painful genetic conditions? Some days, I would personally be happy with Siri just being able to understand a simple reminder request. And other days, other days, I look to a possible future of artificial intelligence being able to help us solve complex problems like climate change, clean energy, global malnourishment, or biodiversity loss. Well, we asked our guests what technology trends they were most excited about, and we have three different answers to share with you. First up is Dr. Alina Turner co-founder of HelpSeeker.org, an app and service that connects you to thousands of community, health, and social services with a click of a button. As we view the world through our own lenses, Alina very much looks through her anthropologist lens when answering which technology trend she is excited about. Learning different languages, and now it seems like it's a mood point. So instantaneous translation is highly, highly exciting to me. It's, it's the Tower of Babel that has been you know, toppled in a way by technology. So I think that's that's huge. And just uh, ramifications of thinking through that alone, <laughs> like, are we going to learn other languages anymore? You know, it's, it's crazy. It's Esperanto on crack. I mean, f for sure, this idea of um, 
needing to translate materials and brochures in 500 different languages is moot point. The need for um, an entire interpreter service is a moot point. So the, you know, the having um, the interface and the so the doctor and the patient and the interface there to do the instantaneous like it's huge like in, so that's the doctor but it could be a case manager or you know whoever the benefits you know assessor etc it's huge so that right there could really speed things up for sure for especially newcomer populations etc well um, I mean for sure in legal documentation I'm not sure that um, those uh, technologies are up to par yet so f for sure we're not in the place right now where humans are fully um, able to be um, replaced the long-term thing if, if you think about like the hacking or manipulating of those instantaneous translation machines for sure you've got some some major uh, ability to influence like you know so and Donald Trump says Let's go to war. <laughs> that doesn't quite translate so well in Korea, right? So you're gonna have these cultural nuances, and as an anthropologist, we and we all know how important nonverbal cues are, and the cultural context is is huge in language. So you can see how it can do certain things, but it's not gonna be able to fully replace uh, the human the human touch. <laughs> like if you speak French and you translate, and you'll say, yeah. Some of the grammar is not quite right, but I get the point. You'll see how far it's coming. So I think just keeping keeping that um, on track. The other one is that there's some free tools that are, some are in beta mode or whatever, but if your job involves a lot of translation, then starting to experiment with that. So if you are a nonprofit that's looking at making your services more accessible and you're like, well, I can't afford a translation service. Well, what about integrating one of those uh, instantaneous translation pieces into your workflow? Like, that's free. It's not any skin off your back. Rahim Sajan, educator, connector, and learning architect, takes us now from Alina's view with language and nuances of individuals to the language and nuances of society, our institutions. You know, this will sound super boring, but institutional reform and institutional uh, positioning in, in our modern context. We have so many people, all with different interests and all of them interface within our institutions. And how do we make them nimble and adaptable to the current challenges that we have? Uh, institutions are a form of technology to me. Uh, they're processes, they're ways of doing things uh, that have a certain weight to them, and they're a technology. They're a way of doing things that we couldn't do otherwise. And so I'm very intrigued with this notion of institutional reform, and particularly how our educational systems will reform as well too to prepare us, and they're, they're really, uh, whether they know it or not, they're at the front line of that. And uh, have they been pushed enough is the question at this point to try and adapt to this sort of rapidly changing world. People are people, and they will have their interests and they'll try and protect that. Institutional reform has become boring and somewhat uh, of a deadening project because of how difficult it is to actually make it happen. And so the the challenge is really going to be centered around how we can create mechanisms where defensive reactions don't come into play, where we actually can talk to people about the progress sort of we can make and buy in into that. I know this sounds ethereal and quite big on some level, but 
there's so much impact there, so many efficiencies we can have. Uh, when I look at, for example, the UN as an institution, uh, it has so much potential to allow us to actually move towards an even better future. Are there ways in which we can do better things at the UN? Now, this has been dissected ad infinitum at this point in time, whether it's a funding issue or some other issue. But really, when you look at an institution like that, what if we could solve some of these uh, sort of these barriers that these institutions have to being adaptable to the world as it is and it needs to be? And if we do that, imagine what we could do. And that's where the hope comes in for me. And also protecting these institutions and their value in the current context is part of this conversation. I'm a huge fan of institutions. So you can call me a little bit of a nerd around this. So it's, it's important to me. Each institution has its own DNA. And knowing that is such an individual thing. But the broad pattern is trying to look at, for example, the governance reforms that took place during the Arab Revolution. I mean, people should really look at that. Look at how the Constitution of Tunisia was being reformed. Uh, and some of these constitutional rebuilding efforts are going around the world that people like His Highness the Aga Khan has, have actually noticed and pointed out that we're going through a process of governance change on so many different levels. Uh, if people start queuing in on those, there's some fascinating conversations, whether it's in South Korea around citizen engagement, or you're talking about North Africa around how a government is supposed to run, to what ends, etc., and so on. Or even you look at Iceland and some of the reform efforts that have been taking place there. But people all over the world are saying, I think are starting to say, we need to govern ourselves differently than we used to. And those conversations are where people, if they paid attention to, they'll be plugged in into something very profound. Next, we have founder and CEO of Benevity, Brian DeLottenville, who's most excited about the convergence of various technologies to better enable doing good. To be honest, um, not, not really. I mean, it's more the uh, confluence of a number of things, uh, you know, coming together that can um, equip people to more efficiently deliver on what might be their intentions around doing good. I mean, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a, a walking example. I mean, my whole life I have wanted to leave the world a little better than I found it and, and wanted to get more involved in things. It wasn't until uh, I started Benevity that I actually started aligning my actions and my intentions in other than casual ways, you know, uh, attending a a, 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 an event or the occasional volunteering um, activity or writing checks, you know, to to uh, organizations. And so um, part of the reason for that is it's if it's difficult and you're in a time-constrained world, you're just going to say, I'll get to that when. And, you know, we need to equip more people with, and especially the millennials and Gen Zs who have a greater appetite for it, um, making it as convenient and and easy as uh, you know we we used to talk about wanting to to make giving back as as convenient and, and prevalent as leaving a tip at a restaurant, um, but you know that again is only the transactional piece. We we really want um, the, the experiential uh, to be the goal, and so obviously there are a lot of technologies now that are making the experiential. Um, a lot more interesting, like 
you know, virtual reality and gaming in the context of doing good is an interesting concept um, because there's neuroscience behind goodness that is also triggered by gaming and, and, and things like that. So um, in my free time one of these days, I want to uh, kind of explore some of, some of that. We've got, uh, you know, Microsoft and, and other companies who are both really engaged in um, doing good and they have products in these areas that, uh, that are interesting. Director at the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University. If listeners have met James before, odds are good that you would know his chosen technology trend is artificial intelligence and how diversity and inclusion could lead to serving the social good. Well, I'm really, I, I am really excited about AI. Uh, I, I actually think there are more reasons to be excited about artificial intelligence than there are to fear art artificial intelligence. Uh, I think the difference will be to what degree do we, outside of the world of tech, engage in artificial intelligence. So, um, you know, much like uh, the rise of cities as great places to live, you know, if you leave that in the hands of, say, transportation engineers, as we once did, you get crappy cities. You get places that are actually quite unlivable. Uh, or if you leave affordable housing in the hands of just architects, you're going to get awful places to live. But we found out that if we all engage, if we involve um, the full diversity of citizens, including marginalized citizens, in the development of uh, these technologies, um, we have a shot, at least, of those technologies serving social good um, more than th more than being some kind of um, Terminator-esque future, Skynet future, where where it'll it'll control us and 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 oppress us. And that's still possible, but I think there's things we can do to minimize that possibility. So I think AI uh, gives us a shot at a more rationally compassionate approach to social good. So right now, there's a lot of um, a lot of how we approach social good is based on um, empathy and and emotional responses and kind of tugging at people's heartstrings. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but it's it's quite imperfect. Uh, and so and it also explains why there are so many charities that get created uh, that are doing very similar or almost identical things to existing charities but it's attached to um, somebody's heart and somebody's, um, uh, for instance, somebody's um, effort to, to build a legacy around a loved one who's died. And so you create a charity in their honor or foundation or whatever um, uh, to support an issue that was close to that person. But, you know, there might be 30 or 40 other such issues and so there's a sprinkling of charitable activity out there, but not a very coherent response to actually tackling the issue in a coordinated way. And so as we introduce more and more systems thinking into not only the university, but in society general, generally, and as we start to develop socially purposeful algorithms that can, um, to which we can attach um, more cogent ethical frameworks. Uh, we actually have a better shot at, at solving hunger, homelessness, um, even climate change potentially, 
rather than a very scattershod kind of uh, haphazard approach that's based on what's familiar to us or what tugs at our heartstrings. So I think um, one of the key questions for us is who's, who's actually making the algorithms um, and under what authority? So um, to the extent to which, as is the case right now, most AI development, the majority is in the hands of about nine large companies. They're either Chinese state-owned companies or they're uh, American uh, tech giants, tech monopolies. That doesn't bode well. That, that's something we should all be concerned about because those motivations tend to be more focused on either um, some form of, of a marketing imperative, so we're just consumers, and the relationship that we have to the technology is as basically bundles of data and objects to be marketed at based on our prior behavior and preferences, or there's a surveillance function that you see with more authoritarian regimes and potentially with non-authoritarian regimes. Um, those kinds of things we need to be extra vigilant for. So we need, and so the, the response to that is at is multiple levels. So we do need international accords and agreements. We need parliamentarians very interested in this, trying to get out in front of it. But more than just a public policy response, we need um, as many kind of open data, data commons initiatives as possible. We need data, data activists. We need funders to support those data activists and watchdogs. Um, we also need in schools, at all levels, really K-12, university, and lifelong learning, um, a, a, a committed, redoubled effort towards what you might call extreme enlightenment and hyper-citizenship, far beyond what we have right now, uh, far beyond Civics 101. Um, I think we can do that. It's, it's conceivable. If we can conceive of it, we can do it. Um, but it will take vigilance on many different fronts to make sure that AI does not have this kind of bleak dystopian manifestation and that AI, in fact, serves humanity. Um, you know, I think we could have lots of AI boot camps and intensives for uh, non-technicians. And, you know, I'm thinking managers, designers, um, uh, evaluators uh, that work in the nonprofit sector and in, and in the public sector. Um, I also think it would be great to have people who are actually working in AI as a specialty, so let's say doing their PhD on it. And Canada, by the way, has some of the most advanced AI schools in the world. If you look at U of University of Alberta, U of T, University of Montreal, uh, we, we are definitely in the game, definitely in the game. What we're not in the game on yet, I in a big way, is the AI for social good piece. Mm. Um, and so uh, it, w it would be you know, great to have, for example, people finishing their PhDs to actually do a kind of social impact internship with uh, uh, a civil society entity working on a complex social challenge. That would be, um, that would be helpful to have that translation back and forth. Mm and that intermixing. I also think, um, you know, if we could work on creating centers or institutes, um, so for example, at University of Southern California, there's a center that employs not only uh, tech AI data specialists, like the technicians and the scientists who are working on this, but they also have social workers, um, writers, uh, um, health practitioners, and others, uh, philosophers, 
in working in cross-functional teams uh, on on AI social good challenges. Uh, Nesta in the UK has the Center for Collective Intelligence Design. Uh, those kinds of um, institutional, inter deeply interdisciplinary, cross-functional appro approaches would be um, really cool for Canada to invest in. I'd like to take a quick break right now and introduce something we've been calling Cool Mission We'll Share, where we introduce to you an organization that one of our guests feels is on the right path and performing excellent work in the area of doing good. And the organization we're sharing today is Common Good Linens, a social enterprise based out of Calgary. And here is Jay Bedala to tell you a little bit about them. My job is getting to uh, talk to cool people doing cool shit all the time. So um, I, I know a lot, but one that instantly comes to mind is a company called Common Good Linens. Uh, they're actually based here in Calgary. They uh, offer linen services to restaurants, uh, basically napkins and, and uh, table tops and all that kind of stuff. They also now have partnered with uh, a mat company to offer that to restaurants. The, the hook is they hire people from the drop-in center uh, to build up their skill set. They authentically put humans first, not just uh, try to make a bunch of money and yes, we care about humans. They authentically are putting humans first and trying to make a business out of that. What, what do they say? You know, I, I try to make this positive impact in the world and I so it just so happens that I do it through um, napkins and, and tablecloths. I, my hope would be that they would spread acro across the world. So they're right now going nationally across Canada. That's a model that's very replicable. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of people that are running companies um, and making a bunch of money selling companies. That's great. Uh, but I want the, the great humans to get that money, right? I want them to be making the money because then the, they're not just making money they're the ones that are going to reinvest that in the community right and making it better so i want those people to be making the money common good liddens was founded in 2016 and as they say they employ people facing poverty through a sustainable commercial laundry service common good is now expanding across canada with a national laundry partner who's doubling down on their employment and environmental impact Common Good is continuing to work with local social service agencies to provide employment to people facing poverty barriers and partnering with local businesses who want to do more good with their dollars. You can find out more by pointing your browser at commongood.com. That's C-M-N-G-D dot com. The Handmaid's Tale, 1984, Neuromancer, Ready Player One, and Atlas Shrugged are all fictional accounts of supposed futures. But when you look 10, 20, 40 years out, do you see the world as a dystopian one? Where it's a little more Hunger Games or Blade Runner, and the edges of society are sharp and dangerous? Or do you believe our future will be a little more Star Trek? A utopian society that empowers everyone to be their best selves? We put this question to our guests, and here are three of their answers. You just heard Jay Bedala share his love of common good, but where does Jay, 
the founder and CEO of Goodpin, which is a web platform that connects companies, people, and charities to unleash infinite potential. Where does Jay see the future? Where does he land on the utopian, dystopian spectrum? I, I'd have to go more down the Star Trek route, although I know, I know that it's always an and. Like, look around. <laughs> There's uh, great things happening all the time. Uh, like, this podcast itself is spectacular that this is happening, right? A podcast focused on good and what that looks like in the future and how to prepare for it. That's that's incredible. At the same time, there's horrible things going on. So I think choose to focus on the good, knowing that both the good and bad exist in every situation and in every person. Um, it doesn't mean I'm naive to the fact that that bad will be there, but uh, I choose, I consciously choose to press into the good and focus on the good and invest myself in the good well it's not to self-promote but um, the idea of good pin is to create that culture of giving that habit of giving and I believe that um, we're neurologically wired to feel pleasure and joy from helping others from doing good um, so the science is is there behind it and the more that we do it the more that we want to do it so you know, that's just one simple example of, of doing it. So um, podcasts like this, thinking about it, right, getting the message out into the world about what uh, it looks like and how um, people can participate more in good. So just getting those ideas out into the world more creates more of it. Um, and I'm sure you've probably heard a lot of uh, people say meditation. It sounds... A, a bit of a cliche but I really believe it's true um, that those moments uh, instilling your mind and ultimately connecting with all of us uh, all consciousness all humanity um, is vital to moving forward I know it's helped me so connecting humanity is a thread that James Stotch also hopes will happen in his potential vision of the future, as he can see a future where the alternative would really be unthinkable. You know, it depends on the day. Um, and I actually think, of course, my own bias is that everyone should think like me, right? So my, I think uh, uh, I think that we should be both. We should be, um, we should think of dark dystopian futures in order to think of the alternatives and to or mm -hmm. order to dream up the alternatives. So not to say we should dwell in a, in a dark place, but we shouldn't be Pollyannish. We shouldn't assume that the future will be bright. We should, um, you know, we should be engaged with the, the you know, uh, Peter Diamandis of the world to see, you know, what, what are these um, really hopeful, exciting tech trends that are out there and be aware of that, but not be Pollyannish about how those will roll out and who will control that and how they'll be parsed out or not. Um, will they be things that are enjoyed by everyone or just by folks in Silicon Valley? And um, so I, I do think we kind of need to go back and forth. You need to go to dark places in order to see the light, right? Well, it's important to know our history and to never forget history. Um, and 
you know, history never repeats itself in quite the same way. But if you look at a very big public policy level, uh, at the breakup of Standard Oil, for example, or the, um, you know, we, it, one of the core principles of functioning markets, um, and this is Economics 101, is you don't let companies be so big that they control the entire marketplace. It does not serve the public interest. And uh, so we see that now with tech giants who have uh, huge amounts of wealth that are approaching the, the kind of uh, power and monopoly conditions that you, you would have seen with, say, the energy industry in the 1920s. Um, so the, the, converse, the public conversation about what that, what that actually means and how you actually break up a company like Facebook or Google um, does need to be fronted in the public sphere. These are very difficult questions, um, but I think that's, that's really important for us to be vigilant about that. It may be impossible to do, in which case, what are the alternatives? Maybe one of the alternatives um, is that some of these big tech giants will need to be nationalized or cooperatized. And, you know, there may be some listeners who go, well, that's socialist. Well, guess what? The future look is going to look a whole lot like socialism, and because otherwise, uh, uh, the the alternative to that is almost unthinkable, right? Um, so we may not call it socialism because socialism has baggage, but it will be um, it will be something like that. It has to be. And I just don't see an alternative. We're heading in that direction inevitably. And what would an insurance policy look like to avoid a dystopian future? Once again, here's Raheem viewing this question through his learning architect lens. Uh, that's a that's a really tough question. Um, I definitely say that uh, there's a utopian element to it, but I'm trying not to be naive about things. I'm trying not to be naive. I'm trying to acknowledge that there are some serious challenges, and the whole sort of dystopian worldview is is one of the prospects we have to deal with. But I'm a hopeful person. Uh, I do think even better is possible. And we have no choice but for it to be possible. <laughs> the alternative is really bleak. So uh, at this point, it's to uh, you know look over our shoulders and make sure that we're, we, we, we are switched on and we're aware of our context and working towards even better. Uh, paying attention to how we're preparing the next generation. Uh, explicitly understanding that that's our insurance. How we prepare the next generation is the biggest insurance policy we have. What kind of dedication are we putting into that? Is it an afterthought? Is it something we do without thought? Uh, how, many, uh, how many sort of uh, resources are being poured into something is a sign of how important it is. And so when I look at education budgets around the world, which countries have it as the highest item in their GDP? I understand people, there are a lot of priorities out there, but our education systems are the only thing in many ways that will help us prepare for an unknown future. How much effort, quality, and rigor are we putting into them? And that's really my uh, sort of my question, really. And uh, I'm thinking that we need to do even better. Welcome once again to Kurzweil's Corner, a peek into our possible collective futures. Inventor, author, and futurist Ray Kurzweil has a technology prediction success rate of roughly 86% since the 1990s. 
In this chapter of Kurzweil's Corner, we're sharing reactions from three of our guests to Kurzweil's prediction that by the end of the 2020s, that's this decade, the Turing test begins to be passable. For those not familiar with the Turing test, in short, a test of a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior equivalent to, or indistinguishable from, that of a human. Responding to this claim that the Turing test will be passable in the next 10 years, you'll hear in order the voices of Lior Rothschild, the Executive Director for Canadian Businesses for Social Responsibility, Carl Swanee, CEO of Ecosec, and Brianna Brownell, Disrupting Goods AI expert from Pure Strategy, Inc. Um, the blurring of um, human and, and non-human communication, I think that... Um, it, you know, it, like every innovation, um, it has positive and negative repercussions. I think that one positive one could be that um, as humans, we, we can be a little irrational in our decision making because so much of it is emotional. So the idea of outsourcing um, some situational decision making might be appropriate. Um, but at the same time, I think the emotion also drives us to make good decisions at times. And so um, I think you need both. I think you need the ability to make emotional and non-emotional decisions. And so in, I hope that um, artificial intelligence can be an enhancement rather than a replacement of human uh, capacity. I'm not really sure about that. I have a hard time with AI in general and ML simply because it's a binary state of zeros and ones that determine whether or not something is or isn't. And the human mind thinks not in terms of necessarily zeros and ones, but obviously fractions and how we see the world now. I don't think that's not... I'm not as naive to think that that is not something that can be replicated or duplicated, but I'm not sure of how I'm just still on the fence as to whether or not we would ever achieve something that is the equivalent of a human. Absolutely. I think that the, the work that is happening in cognitive technology, which is, the area that that we're working in is just absolutely dumbfounding and it's getting better and better and better and better. So the sort of frontier of the Turing test right now is dealing with ambiguity with common sense. And so most of the, you know, so there are many, many people and organizations who have suggested Turing test questions and, um, what the ones that remain unsolved have in common is that there's some kind of ambiguity about the question that is solved by common sense or experience in the world. And so I think that as we are able, better able to provide the cognitive technology, artificial intelligences that we're building with some of this common sense information, it's going to get better and better at understanding the implied context of these things. And so I think that it's 
such the Turing test is such an interesting test because it it relies on tricking a human into thinking that a computer is a human, right? So so it's it's relying on deception. And you know, so one might think that maybe that's not really the best test that we can conceive of for, you know, quality of AI. Um, but there's such an interesting part to it because on some level, I think that we want to think of an artificial intelligence as a quasi human. And so I think that that's why the Turing test has stood the test of time as like the gold standard test for AI. Here's one that I like. This is, this is a little bit different. Um, if the sky is the sea, what does that make birds? Okay, so here's another one. The town councillors refused to give the demonstrators a permit because they feared violence. Who feared violence? So then the sort of alternative to that question is the town councillors refused to give the demonstrators a permit because they advocated violence. So who advocated violence? So it's an ambiguity in the sentence, but we know whether, you know, that it's the, the councillors that are fearing violence and the demonstrators that are potentially advocating violence. And so it's immediately obvious to humans who is being referred to. But then if you look at the question just as a language problem, there's no obvious answer. I think the Turing test being passed is going to be such a huge deal. And I mean, the, the challenge with it is that, you know, even if you have, uh, even if you have uh, an AI that does generally pass the test, there's always going to be, you know, people who say that this, this, you know, didn't count for, for one reason or another. But I think that um, having a conversant, artificial intelligence is such a compelling thing that, you know, humans, humans need to do this. Like when I was in university, um, that is when I discovered Eliza, which is one of the first chatterbots that was, it was, you know, written in the fifties. And what it was supposed to be is a, a psychologist that would um, that would ask you questions about, um, you know, what was on your mind and what was bothering you. And so it was really, really simplistic. It just took the sentence that you said and kind of tried to play it back on itself to get you to talk more and more. But the thing is, there were always these moments when I would be talking with Eliza and you would just think that you saw this like spark of intelligence and, you know, it's a feeling that you can't really shake sometimes where it's, it's there's something happening behind the scenes. And so even though I knew that, you know, it, it's really just taking the symbols and the words and sort of folding them back on itself, there's something so compelling about being able to talk to a machine that, you know, the Turing test is something that I think humans are definitely going to do and we're going to work on it until it gets until it gets passed for me having an artificial intelligence that can coherently pass the turing test would show that there is some level of understanding about 
our world. And, you know, I think that that scares people a little bit because they, they, you know, they want to be able to think that humans are sort of the, the highest level of, of, you know, experience that, that happens on earth and being able to have a conversation with an artificial intelligence, I think is such a um, scary and exhilarating prospect for people. And so I think that fundamentally it'll change the way that we think about ourselves and our own abilities. Before we wrap up our first episode, we just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause, a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In Pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to Pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find Pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. That's it for this episode of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by... Leo Rothschild. Brian DeLottenville. Brianna Brownell. Raheem Sajan. Jay Baydella. Dr. Alina Turner. James Stotch. Colson Prophet. Elise Martinowski. And me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode at DisruptingGood.com and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewens on Twitter, and you'll hear us next time on Disrupting Good when our guests discuss technology trends they're concerned about and the prediction that most human diseases will be cured in the 2040s. All next time on episode four of Disrupting Good.